0: Take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 26, if you will. We'll press on in our study of Matthew. If you're new with us today, we're excited to have you join us in Matthew chapter 26. We are working our way. We have been working our way since we began as a church family through Matthew's gospel record. And today we come to the 26th chapter and to the final portion, the final section, the final main division of Matthew's gospel record and... We have finally come to the passion of Christ. Matthew chapter 26, and let's read through the first 16 verses. These will be our, our focus for this morning as we study, and then we'll dive into them after asking God to help us as we study. So let's, let's read together Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse number 1. When Jesus had, had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to Him with an al- alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare Me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verse number 14, then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him father help us now as we study your word we need grace and strength for this time paul's writing to the corinthian believers reminds us that it is only your spirit who grants us understanding of your word and so we seek his help now because of christ and for his name's sake we ask amen Matthew chapter 26 comes right on the heels of that last discourse of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 known as the all of it discourse. That's the fifth and the final major sermon if you will of Jesus' ministry. This is the final public teaching moment for Jesus. And chapter 26 really begins with the conclusion of that sermon. I mean these words at the beginning here in verse number 1 and 2 really set up the end of that sermon and transition us now to what will come in chapter 26, 27, and 28. We find our context established and then the instruction really begins from Matthew through the narrative account. These events will happen quickly, but time will move very slowly. So up to this point in Matthew, we have moved over major periods of time in relatively few words. Now we will move in moments and hours and it will take as many words to cover an hour or two hours or a half of a day as it did to cover weeks or months in previous portions of Matthew's gospel record. The key for us to understand this morning as we launch into this study of the passion, and this will carry us through the end of this book and it will carry us into the middle, the middle of this year, The key theme that keeps driving home as I've been studying and working through this text is that the cross of Jesus is the center of human history and must be the center of our human existence or therefore must be the center of our human existence. The cross of Jesus Christ is the center of human history. Therefore, it must be the center of our human existence. So often we consider the cross to be history for us. Or the entry point to a Christian experience. So we offer up the cross to an unbeliever as their remedy to their sin problem. But the the cross is the centerpiece of all that is. And therefore, as we will find over and over again, brought to light for us by Matthew's faithful record under the inspiration of the Spirit. Therefore, the cross must be the center of our human existence broaden that out from your personal experience as a believer with the cross at the center of your life it must be the center of our life as a church family the cross is the basis upon which we gather together it is the cross it's the passion is what took place in these chapters that is the founding theology for our gathering together as a local assembly of Christ's body along with all of the other local assemblies that gather in his name it's the cross that is the basis of of our our scattering to spread the good news of the kingdom is the cross is at the center it's our hope for our sanctification it is our message for evangelization and of course it is the good news that is the foundation of our life in christ so the umbrella theme over this portion of gospel of matthew is that the cross of jesus is at the center of human history therefore it must be at the center of our, that is the people of Christ, it must be at the center of our human existence. Now, this major division breaks down into subdivisions, and I want to give those to you for those of you who are outliners and like to see the text before we get to the text. Let me give you some basic guidelines to the breakdown here in this last portion of Matthew. First, we find the preparation for the passion. That's what we're going to study today. We'll begin the study of the preparation for the passion. That takes us from verse number one of chapter 26. All the way to verse 46 of chapter 26. So 26, 1 to 46 give us the preparation for the passion. Chapter 26, beginning in verse 47, carrying through 27, 26. If you're new to the study of the Bible, this is not code, Uh, this is just chapter and verse breakdown. So, verse number 26 and verse 47 through chapter 27 and verse 26 is the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Some of the most painful. Difficult reading and study that we will encounter. Culminating then in chapter 27, verse 27 through 61, with the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. So we have the preparation for the Passion, then the arrest in chapter 26, 47 to chapter 27, verse 26, then the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus in chapter 27, verse 27 to 61, and then finally we'll find the resurrection and the final instructions. Chapter 27, verse 62, through chapter 28, and verse 20. Final instructions being known as the Great Commission. So we have the preparation, then we have the arrest and trial, then we have the crucifixion and burial, and then the resurrection and the final instructions. These divisions help us, at least. They're, they're not inspired, but they help us get a grip on what's going on in the big picture of this final portion of Matthew's Gospel. Today, we begin with the preparation and the preparation for the passion is all about instruction for us. Matthew is recording details. He's writing a narrative. It's difficult for us occasionally when we read narrative to make that transition to this applying to my life. We read narrative, we read history, we read a portion of scripture that seems to be just giving us details about a situation. And sometimes it would be difficult for us to transition into how then must I obey this narrative? But this portion of God's word is no different than any other portion of God's word. It is a lamp to our feet. This paves a way for us. This provides opportunities for us to put on display the grace that changes us through the gospel. So this passage must be considered as instructional for us, though it is accounting or recounting rather details and events. For these first 16 verses, which only make up a third of this preparation portion of the Passion Week or account. For these first 16 verses, we're going to find two truths that come directly out of of this reading. Two truths that become very clear regarding the Passion as Jesus prepares the disciples for the Passion and as Matthew prepares his readers for the Passion. Matthew is there. He's there with Jesus. What he's recording is an eyewitness account. He was first person. He was involved in these activities. But he's writing to a group of people just like us. People beyond the resurrection. People beyond the cross. Now Matthew records this instructing them through the Spirit's oversight. So Jesus is instructing the disciples. Matthew is instructing the readers. All of this taking place within the narrative. Two truths. And you can jot these down and then we'll examine them together. Truth number one, the passion was according to plan. Theological truth that gives way to our lives being affected by this text. The passion was according to plan. There's nothing about this that is out of order or out of control. It's all under control. It's according to plan. Truth number two, the passion was polarizing for all involved. The passion was according to plan or on purpose. And the passion was polarizing. That is divisive or divisive, depending on your pronunciation. It divided the people and it continues to divide even today. So let's consider those two truths from verses one through 16, and we won't spend a ton of time digging out all of the the, the minute details that are here, but I want to highlight some of them so that we don't miss the clear implications of these texts. The passion, first of all. Was according to plan verses one and two. Notice what Jesus says to conclude the Olive discourse, his sermon about the end of all things of the coming of judgment in his second coming. When Jesus, Matthew records, had finished all these sayings when he had wrapped up his discourse on the side of the Mount of Olives, he said to his disciples, "You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man." will be delivered to be crucified. Now, those words are introductory, so they're easy for us to read them like introductory words. It's easy for us to breeze past this, because this is the fourth time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has predicted His passion. And the second time that He's mentioned His crucifixion. You might remember those previous predictions or prophecies about the passion. You can find them in chapter 16 and verse 21. Verse 21. Chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, and then again in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. The fourth time Jesus now has said to the disciples, this is what's coming. But this time is slightly different because Jesus begins this this statement to the disciples with two words that almost can make us smile on this side of reading this account. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. He he tells them that they know this. Disciples, what they knew was sketchy at best. And though he had already said this three times, and though he's assuming of them that they know, they need information from Jesus. I believe Jesus predicts his passion in this particular setting for the purpose of driving home those last words. And saying that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified he's giving them clear confidence that what is about to happen which is going to rattle and shake you down to the core these 12 men 11 of them faithful who had walked with christ for over three years who had learned of the kingdom who were anticipating the arrival of that kingdom who had confusion about that kingdom but who knew that he was the christ who knew that he was the one who had the words of eternal life everything that made them who they were Everything that had led them away from their family businesses, walked away from their life, their resources. It was all about to be shaken down to the foundation. Because the events of the passion needed preparation. Jesus now instills in them confidence that the passion was, is going to be, in this case, according to plan. They can go back and remember these four statements from Jesus. He has known all along that this is coming. There are no surprises as we study the passion. Not for Jesus. Now, Jesus says that in two days, the Passover will begin. That puts this on a time frame of Tuesday afternoon. If you remember this, I was laughing with Jerry Torres this week telling him i was asking if you remember that the jewish calendar began the next day at sundown of the previous day so tonight when the sun goes down it's tomorrow he said yeah i remember you saying that the last time and i decided i was just going to trust you on that because i couldn't even think like that that's true i i'm trying to work this week through the timeline of the passion week and i keep having to think of the day starting the previous afternoon when the sun goes down Now, that's complex for us because we don't work on that kind of a schedule. But basically, that puts us at Tuesday afternoon. The Passover will begin on Thursday afternoon. They'll kill and cook a lamb and they will eat their Passover meal in an upper room Thursday afternoon. Friday, Jesus will die. That's how close we are. A lot has taken place on this Tuesday. They've arrived back in the city. They saw the withered fig tree. They, they heard all of the, the confrontations in the temple. You remember this? They moved outside. They pointed to the view of the temple and they said, look at that. And, and Jesus said, not one of those stones is going to be standing on top of the other one. And he launched into an explanation of what they should anticipate as the end comes. And now Jesus says, two days from now, Passover begins. And I go to a Roman cross. There will be time to study crucifixion. But that is a softened word in our experience. This would put the fear, like fear we've never known, into the hearers. The key here in verses 1 and 2 is for us to realize that as this narrative unfolds, there's nothing that's outside the plan. This week I was reminded by a, a fellow pastor that to say that things happened out of our control... Is basically to say everything. Because nothing happens under our control. But everything happens according to plan. I was also encouraged this week to have the same pastor say. When I have a week like this week. When nothing seems to be going according to plan. I need to ask myself a question. Whose plan?" You see, the sovereignty of God in the Passion Week is as applicable as it was to the disciples as they they needed to be prepared for the events as it is for you and me. We need preparation for what is coming in our lives. It is no different at a theological base than the preparation that was made for the crucifixion of Christ. Christ says this will happen and it will happen because it has been ordained to happen. This has been prophesied. We'll see that as we study through this. This was to fulfill what was said. In the Old Testament, this was to fulfill what had been planned in the mind of God. Turn over to Acts chapter two and let me show you this from one of the other guys who heard Jesus say this. So these are just a few days really later. There's this man named Peter who we've got acquainted with in the Gospel of Matthew. And Peter's preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, the founding of the church. The Spirit is falling upon all who are believing. And Peter is declaring the truth of the gospel. And notice verse number 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men that is the romans who carried out their desires god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it do you notice the middle there it was by the according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god peter in the aftermath of all that would take place in his denial of christ in his rejection of christ in his The the lowest moment of his walk with Christ. Following all of that and the restoration that took place. And there along the sea as Jesus said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? After all that's accomplished, the Spirit comes. Peter says, all of these events took place. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now brothers and sisters, that is enormously important for us. This was no accident. Your life is no accident. Your trials are no accident. Your blessings are no accident. The unknown is not accidental. The future is not fatalistic. It is personally planned by a creator sovereign of the universe. Who has ordained all things for the goal of bringing himself glory. So take heart with the disciples as they are prepared for the passion. The passion was according to plan. As is your life in Christ. The cross of Jesus is at the center of human history. Therefore, that cross, this passion, these events need to be at the center of our human existence. Truth number two. The passion would polarize all involved. It polarized everybody who was connected to it. Verse number three down to verse number 16. Now, there's two groups, obviously, in polar opposites. We have two polarized groups. We have those who hate Jesus and we have those who love Jesus. And I believe that's exactly what Matthew's trying to highlight by including these verses for us. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Let's look first at those who are marked by their hatred for Christ. There are those who are leaders with hatred. Fascinatingly enough, these are the men of God. These are the Bible people. These are the elders. These are the chief priests. These are the Pharisees and the scribes. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the people who you could go to and say, what does it say in Isaiah chapter 7? And they would tell you and then explain to you what it meant. These were the ones who said, what are the laws for the Sabbath? And they knew them. These are the ones who memorized the Torah. These are the, the men of the book. And they are filled with hatred for the Son of God. They are the first category Sly, attempting to take Jesus by stealth and to kill him. To somehow force Jesus off a cliff or run him through. Somehow to create a a coincidental accident so that Jesus is wiped off the scene. Leaders filled with hatred. False religious shepherds. The second is the intimate hatred. There's the leaders who hate and there's the friend who hates Jesus. We're going to see Judas show up in the middle of the story about Mary and the ointment, but we really see Judas on display in verses 14 to 16. The chief priests and the elders and, and their whole plan to go get Jesus by stealth and kill him, it didn't have to happen because one of his friends came and said, I'll give him to you. I'll sell him to you. You set me up with a little bit of money and you'll have Jesus when you want him. And that began the plan For the betrayal of Christ. Now note the hallmarks. Of this hatred that's displayed here. In verses 1 through 16. Number one this hatred. Is marked by hypocrisy. These are the people who scream the loudest. I love God. And they hate Jesus. For who he is. And what he represents. And the message that he proclaims. He steals their glory. He removes their prominence. He is the Messiah from an unknown village, from an unknown mom who they cannot submit to. So hypocrisy is rank in this hatred. This hatred is also marked by extreme conclusions. These people do not hate Jesus in the sense of he annoys me. Can we go get some kind of restraining order in the temple so that this guy can't come in and teach and heal people? No, this is extreme in its conclusion. They are at the end of their rope of hatred and it's got to end and it's got to end finally with death. He needs to be killed and shut up once and for all. That is extreme in its conclusion because the hatred is deep seated in their wicked hearts. So while they scream their love for God, put on a display of religiosity, they are filled with seething, extreme hatred for the Messiah of God. And finally this hatred in Judas's life is seen in eager denunciation and betrayal. Judas sees an opportunity for a little cash and trades the Messiah for that cash. Now on the flip side of that coin we find the other polarizing extreme. We find affection, lavish affection those who related to Christ during this time as preparation for his passion is is in full swing and even in this account that we'll read in the middle of this paragraph verses 6 through 13 we find extravagant extremes we find people who are living out on either end of the spectrum full of hatred screaming crucify him give us barabbas or doing what Mary does in verses 6 through 13 this is affection that is extravagant in, in its display. Now, the story here isn't difficult for us to, to understand from Matthew's record. Okay, the, the house of Simon the leper, he's not a leper anymore. That would be defiling everybody who's in his presence unless he's healed. So the assumption here is that in Bethany, there was a guy named Simon. That's a common name. He used to be a leper. He lived in the colony outside of the town because if you're in contact with this guy, you're contaminated. Jesus heals him. He, he becomes a follower of Christ. He's granted faith an eagerness. He has Jesus in his home. He's now hosting the one who saved him. And this event takes place in Bethany at Simon the leper's house. That's all we know about Simon was that he was a leper who. Ninety nine point nine percent sure was healed of his leprosy, unless this was the most extreme unexpected case in our New Testament. And a woman came up to Jesus, alabaster, flask, expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now all that's pretty easy for us to get because we don't really have a clue what's being talked about. Good, it was alabaster. Nothing. And it was expensive ointment. You're thinking like perfume shop or all the people in Macy's that spray all that perfume that gives you a really bad headache when you walk through there. You just really don't have a grid for this. This is pure nard. This is in an alabaster flask, which means something to this story. But there's more to the details of what's happening here, and I want to show them to you briefly. Turn to John chapter 12, and let's see this story unpacked by the apostle whom Jesus loved. The apostle John records this same account in John chapter 12, verse 1 down to verse 8. And right away, you're going to notice a problem in this account, and we'll deal with that problem In just a moment, six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this is where Mary, Martha and Lazarus lived. This is where Jesus came and called Lazarus out of the tomb. This is where Jesus likely lived, um, stayed in people's homes. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Nothing to surprise us here. Luke chapter 10. We know Martha's going to be serving, right? This is her way. She's serving. Notice verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, there's some important details that are filled in by John's record. First is the timing of this event. All the way through our study of Matthew, I've tried to remind you occasionally that Matthew's not writing a chronological history, he's writing a thematic history. Now there's a general chronology to what's happening, but the details in the passages that we study, Matthew's taking them and bringing them because he's presenting a point. He's presenting a theme. So these events are the same events and Matthew's borrowing an event from earlier in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Christ, in Bethany, and bringing it to bear on this record. So he... He basically takes an old illustration, puts it into this record of the preparation for the passion, which it was, and utilizes it for his theme. The passion was according to plan, and the passion polarized people. And I believe that's Matthew's intention. He's making those polarizing extremes obvious. People who are associated with Jesus only have two options. Love him or hate him. Follow him or reject him heaven or hell, these are the only two extremes. The woman is Matthew. Lazarus is there. Martha is there. The alabaster flask is worth, the contents of the alabaster, alabaster flask are worth 300 denarii. Now, you're Bible students, or you see the little caption, or you have a study note in your Bible, it'll tell you that denarii, 300 denarii, denarii is about a day's wage. So basically, men, this is one year of your salary worth of perfume. That's ridiculous, by the way. That's ridiculous. But then we find out more about this perfume because this alabaster flask is important. It was not intended to be open. You didn't open this. Alabaster had the ability to bleed the contents. You would set this in your home and for years you would get a fragrance coming off of this expensive item in your home so mary opens it and dumps it on jesus head and feet washing his feet with her hair this this whole scene is wild in its context in the historical understanding this is beyond belief because the only way to open an alabaster flask like this with pure nard in it which would be a a a long-term fragrance was to was to break the top off She broke the top of this expensive container to dump out a year's worth of salary of ointment on Jesus' head. And the disciples referenced here are led by none other than Judas Iscariot, who's leading the self righteous, hypocritical, and ridiculously hateful response to her love for Jesus. Oh, we should have given this to the poor. What are you thinking? In other words, I should have gotten to skim some of that off of the top of the money bag. And Jesus responds with an appropriate priority that's placed. Love for him is by far the preeminent priority in the life of his followers. Jesus says in chapter 26 back in Matthew, You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The preparation for the passion created the environment for the polarizing of people. Don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not downgrading the opportunity to care for the poor. This is clearly communicated through Scripture. True religion is caring for those who are destitute. James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. What he's denigrating is the false claim that this money could be utilized for the poor better than used as an affection symbol to Jesus. Better than lavished upon the Son of God who is going to the cross. This could have been used for the poor. Jesus says, your, your priority system is completely out of whack. This extravagant love. Is not really extravagant at all. This radical expression of devotion is not really radical at all. In fact, the eleven disciples who are a part of this situation in this house of Simon the leper, those eleven disciples, apart from Judas Iscariot, who would commit suicide in the aftermath of betraying Christ, those eleven disciples would all give their lives for Christ. It's funny, isn't it, that we would be shocked by the one year salary of perfume? That puts into perspective how much we think it cost us to follow Christ. The disciples would give far greater. They would give themselves. Their lives would be consumed with the person, work, and message of Jesus Christ, as we ought also to be consumed. No cost is too high. For this precious lamb who is preparing to go to the cross. Matthew's record of the preparation is instructional. The person in the work and the gospel of Jesus create two responses amongst those who encounter him. In these days, we're going to keep seeing these two groups, those who are willing to love and commit themselves and and shower him with their affection and those who would be filled with hatred, desiring to see him die. Right in the middle of those two polarizing groups, we've got the confusion of the disciples. We have Mary's extravagant love. We have the leaders in Judas' extravagant hatred. And the disciples are caught somewhere in the middle. The disciples would learn through this. This preparation would come back to bear on them after the fact. As they realize that the cross of Jesus is at the center of human history and therefore must be at the center of their human existence. These men are going to run, folks. They're going to run. Very shortly, every one of them is going to scatter. We get on Peter's case, but the other ones weren't even there. And yet these lessons are preparing them not just for what is about to take place, for them to know that it's under sovereign plans from God, but also for them to recognize The polarizing nature of the person and work of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you know a gospel that costs you nothing, you know a false gospel. If the gospel is, I get my life as I have it, and I get to tack on to it Jesus, and He gets me to heaven when I'm dead, you don't understand the gospel. If the gospel is, I don't give up anything. Christ gives up everything to make me what I want to be. He's my dream fulfiller. He's my fixer. He's my my best doctor ever. He's my genie in the bottle. You don't know the gospel. The gospel is the end of us. The exaltation of the suffering lamb. The gospel is all of us set aside. The surrender is total, complete, permanent. That's where we begin, and that's what we fight to continue to live as we progress in our likeness to Christ. So, the passion. Always according to plan in every detail, and polarizing for all who were involved. It's true this morning that we've been created to be fanatical. I thought this weekend, I was thinking about the way we celebrate fanatics in our culture. I mean, 52 or so men with a bunch of plastic gear on, and they have a piece of leather, uh, like skin from an animal that's sewn together, and they put air in it. And then one set of guys tries to run it over a line, and the other set of guys tries to get them before they go over the line. And the result, people without their clothes on, body painted, screaming, making fools of themselves with... With no thought of the cost. People screaming at strangers. Who are wearing striped white and black shirts. Screaming in hatred at these people. And hugging and jumping around with perfect strangers that they've never met. Because they're not wearing the stripes. They're wearing the same color as their team. See, fanatical responses are, are a part of our, our being as human beings. Now, football is just one of the extremes. If you don't like football, don't don't... I mean, take heed lest you fall. Okay, there's there's other extremes because we've been created to revel, to be fanatics, to be all about something, to be consumed with something. But it's not football and it's not this life and it's not possessions and it's not family and it's not these other things. It's Christ. It's the one who's going to die. He is consuming and he's worthy and he's the only one worthy of that consuming passion. So be prepared with the disciples as we get to go back and and walk through this history of the Passion, as we get to go back and experience the cross, which is the centerpiece of, of, of human history. Be prepared for the effects of it on our human existence. The world, our flesh, which still bears sin, our enemy, are all screaming here's something else to be fanatical about. It'll satisfy, it will fulfill. And yet we know that according to the the plan of God, there is only one who is worthy of our undying and unqualified affections. It's Jesus. Mary is a living illustration. And we this morning had the opportunity to be the fulfillment of prophecy. Did you know that? You were a part of the fulfillment of prophecy. If you're going to lunch with people from another local assembly, let them know. Guess what we did this morning? We were part of a fulfillment of prophecy. Why? Because this kind of affection towards Jesus, this kind of not radical, but extravagant show of love for him, this disregard for monetary value and personal possessions and personal status with the people that are in the room, this kind of sacrifice. Notice what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, verse 13, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done Will also be told in memory of her. This is rewarded. This is celebrated. This kind of radical allegiance to Jesus, affections that know no boundaries. This is the delight of his Father. So much so that the Spirit has preserved even till today this record. For the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of a substitute for sinners who believe. To be mentioned in the same breath with Mary pouring out perfume on Jesus' head. Polarizing his dreams according to plan. This is preparation for the passion. Now this morning we need to ask ourselves, what do we do with this text? How do I obey this portion of God's word? I've been praying this week and this weekend and this morning that God would awaken a fresh perspective of the cross and the, the Christ of the cross. I can't think that the Spirit's intention for us with this text is, is not to reconsume us with the wonder of the gospel. Like, it's way too mundane. I'm way too unaffected. I'm way too roll my eyes. We're doing the gospel Again. This is the gospel. This is unfathomable truth. So no doubt in preparation for our study of the passion, we should be praying for an affection that matches our theology. We believe that God sent His Son to die for us and was raised on the third day. And yet we live that as if, yeah, we believe it. We need to pray for a fresh view of the value of this sacrifice so that our affections are captured by Christ, so that our lives are molded and shaped by the centerpiece of human history, which is the cross of Christ. We need confidence that the sovereign plan of God is still going on today as much as it was in these moments preparing for this passion. But Brothers and sisters, obey this text by cultivating a fresh appreciation For the cross resulting in deepening affections for the Christ who died there. We're about to do that. That's what this is for. These little tiny crumbs of unleavened bread and little tiny things of juice. They're not insignificant. They're not a ritual. But we are about to remind ourselves of the value of what was happening at the cross. Blood was being shed. Body was being given. In our place, this should should ruin our week for the glory of God. This should shock your coworkers because what happened to you? I was reminded of who my Savior is and what he accomplished. This should shock us as we engage with other believers with the love that we love them with. Why because we 've been reminded we 've seen it again. The laying down of His life for us. Are we in awe of Jesus or are we just happy to go through Christian motions? Do we genuinely love one another with actions? Not flawlessly, but do we genuinely appropriate this gospel to our lives? Is this cross really at the center of our priority? Listen to this quote, finally, and we'll we'll close this time together. C.J. Mahaney says this in his little book. If you don't have it, you should get it. Christ-centered living. C.J. says, In the midst of our various responsibilities and many possible areas of service in the kingdom of God, one overarching truth should motivate all our work and effort, every part of who we are. Jesus died for our sins. There is no one else worthy of our affections. He is first, he is primary, he is exclusive in his rights to our our being. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are. You are in the hypocritical haters of Jesus delineation. Here's the marvel of the gospel. Even if you personally stood at the the judgment seat and screen for the crucifixion of Christ to Pilate. Grace is extended to you. Here's the marvel. Your hypocrisy can be overcome by the cross. Turn from your own wisdom. Turn from your own righteousness. Stop believing in your own ability to earn some favor with God. Turn from your sinful love of yourself. And in turning, look to Christ, believe what you cannot see, that he is the son of God, perfectly obedient in his life to the law of God, dying and bearing the perfect wrath of God poured out in your place. raised the third day to provide perfect victory over sin and death forever. And you will receive an inheritance through him. This is a marvel for those of you who have been saved within a Christian experience, You know this marvel. God saves hypocrites. I'm one of them. An unbeliever this morning, you also can be one of them if you will turn and look to Christ. End your hypocrisy. Repent and believe and you'll be saved. Father, thank you for this privilege of opening your word. It is that it is a privilege you have met us to speak to us directly. We do not deserve this kindness from you. We do not deserve to have a word from you, nor to have such a careful and helpful reminder of gospel truth. And so as we turn our attention from listening to you through the preaching of your word, help us now to be careful in our application of remembering the cross this will be just moments of our time and yet these are eternal truths that we're remembering may we value christ more appropriately may his priority be evident even as we set our hearts now before you in the remembrance of his table we give you praise and thanks for how you've already been working in our hearts we ask you to continue that now in these next couple of minutes For the glory of Your name, the exaltation of Your Son, in total dependence upon Your Spirit, we ask this. Amen.